0: Hello, this is Resonance FM, and I'm Anja Steinbauer from Philosophinal magazine, bringing you the Philosophinal radio show. This is the last program in the current series, and um, I think we're going out on a highlight. The music you heard at the beginning will have given you a clue about tonight's theme. The song was Literature Sucks by Axelwald, <laughs> and guess what? I've got a bunch of people here who don't agree with that statement at all. They're here to discuss philosophy and literature with me, and they are Professor Gregory Curry of the University of Nottingham, Dr. Stacey Friend from Heathrow College, London, and Dr. Edward Harcourt of uh, Keeley College, Oxford. Now, first of all, perhaps um, we could just uh, talk a little about what literature is actually is well if you've listened to this show before you know that we're really interested in definitions here i recently walked into travel agents because i wanted to find out about holidays in iceland and the nice lady behind the desk said to me here's some literature for you but she what she handed to me were not the works of dostoevsky goethe or uh, borges but a small pile of glossy pamphlets Nonetheless, she definitely used the word literature appropriately. Now, presumably, uh, Greg, this is not the kind of literature in which you're interested. No, Can you enlighten us about definition of literature for you?
1: That's right. Um, I'm, I'm not sure about definitions of literature, and I guess there are many of them and they're conflicting and we'd spend a lot of time sorting out which the right one was. But the kind of literature that I'm interested in has... Um, A number of characteristics that come together in an interesting way. One is that I mean by literature something that's in a narrative form. I'm particularly interested in fictional literature, though I agree that we can talk sensibly and often do about non-fictional literature as well. And I take it, and this is perhaps an old-fashioned view, to be a mark of literature that it has to have certain special kinds of qualities to go with it. So not all fiction is literature, and not all literature is fiction.
0: That is very interesting and very confusing. So, so, so Stacey, you're particularly interested in, in fiction, right? And, and fic- fiction, non fiction. Can, can you tell right. us about how you use all those terms and how you
2: tell the them life. apart literature from literature and so on? Well, I think primarily I haven't been focused necessarily only on literature. So the fiction-nonfiction distinction, as Greg implied, goes well beyond works of literature. So there's fiction that doesn't have the kinds of qualities that we might conservatively think literature ought to have. Um, And there's many works of nonfiction, like the kind that you described, the pamphlets, um, that we don't normally describe as literature. But I am interested in the difference between when we talk about works of literature and narratives in particular, the difference between fiction and nonfiction and how we engage with those kinds of works differently. Yes, yes, yes. yes. That, that, that's Okay, that's very interesting. Um, Edward, do you want
0: to
3: add anything to that? Well, disappointingly, perhaps there isn't a great deal that I want to add to that. I, mean, I, think, it's, I think it's very important that, as Greg said, we keep the, cate- the distinction between literature and non-literature and fiction and non-fiction distinct. Yes. Uh, literature is in part an honorific term, so it has something yes. to do perhaps with yes. a special attention to language and avoidance of stale forms of expression but I don't yes. have a definition of what distinguishes the literary from the non-literary in yes. uses of language. But unless we keep the fiction, non-fiction, literature, non-literature distinctions distinct, there are certain kinds of questions that I think we're all interested in that we're not going to be able to raise about what about truth in particular. about yes, yes, Because yes. I think that the respect in which literary language and fiction yes. raise questions and problems for truth are very different.
0: Yes, yes, and we'll definitely have to come back to, to this. Mm. Discussion about the truth, and we will. Um, but but you know, if it's an honorific term, well, is is there a certain relativism there? Is it just a, perhaps even subjective? Well, what's literature to you may not be literature to me. That that sort of thing.
3: I don't think that saying that it's an honorific term implies any relativism. I mean, not that we couldn't argue about yes. what deserves, yeah. uh, you know, what has or hasn't got literary merit. But I I didn't mean to suggest. No
0: no no, I, I understand. So so mm. then, there would be particular standards for, for making the distinction.
2: Presumably the fact that we could argue about it implies that we're at least presupposing yes. that it's not just relative, it's not just literature for yes. me or literature for yeah. you. Yeah. Right? There could be kinds of literature that I don't engage with, perhaps literature from other cultures where I'm not familiar with the forms and so on, but that doesn't mean that it's literature for them And not potentially also literature for me. We assume that there are certain qualities we can get out of it. I think I should add, because I think most of us are very interested in fictional literature and narrative, but the concept of literature clearly goes beyond the narrative and includes, for example, the poetic, which need not be narrative, but that's a standard conception of literature. I don't think we're going to be discussing it primarily but just worth noting
0: but But yes yes, you're you're right so so we've got got a lot of uh, terminology here already so we've got literature and fiction and and, and narrative uh, and and we'll come back to to, to various uh, of these but perhaps you could tell us a little bit about well you know why might you say that philosophers should read literature I mean clearly you know philosophers should read philosophy that's that's obvious but um, why literature can this add anything apart from it being enjoyable of course but you know uh, particularly as philosophers, why should we be interested in that? Greg, what do you think?
1: Well, um, you can be interested in literature as a philosopher in the way that philosophers are interested in all sorts of things. Um, So philosophers are interested in science. Yes. So there's a whole area of philosophy which is the philosophy of science. Um, And for just about anything that people do in an intellectual sort of way, there's a philosophy of it. (laughs) So you can do maths and you can do the philosophy of mathematics. You can do economics and you can do the philosophy of economics. Um, Sometimes the distinction between doing the subject and doing the philosophy of the subject blurs and it's very hard to distinguish between them. There's probably no sharp boundary. But when you're doing the philosophy of... You're typically standing back somewhat and asking certain kinds of very basic and often conceptual questions about the activity rather than actually engaging in it. So when you do the philosophy of literature, one of the things you try to sort out is, well, what is actually literature? Uh, And what are literary values, which is what we've just been talking about. So that's one reason for being a philosopher interested in literature. But you may also have other reasons, some of them pretty important. So you may think, as some philosophers do, that literature is itself in some way a philosophical enterprise or may be part of a philosophical enterprise and that there are peculiarly philosophical insights to be gained from literary sources yes. that we couldn't gain from the normal modes of philosophical argument.
0: Do you think that's the case?
1: I, I'm doubtful about it. <laughs> I have no very firm opinion on this subject. Um, this has been argued for very vociferously by Martha Nussbaum in yes. her loves knowledge and i'm not persuaded by very much that she says there about the idea that there's something uniquely um, philosophical in the fictional narrative genre that we can't get in other ways um, so I think it's a very difficult question. I've no settled opinion. I'm a bit sceptical about
0: it. <laughs> Edward, what do you think? What's, what's your interest in this this whole area?
3: Well, I th- I think that the question that Greg has just raised about whether there are li- literature is distinctively suited to delivering certain sorts of philosophical insight or understanding is an enormous question. And uh, want to... Come back to that in a minute, if I might. But to raise not a not a smaller question, but a question that, about which I think I've probably got less to say, um, <laughs> is that one one of the philosophical questions about literature is what is literature? And I think we've been trading uh, so far on the simplifying assumption that literature is this um, a an historical um, cult- non culture bound concept yes. uh, with which we can net effortlessly everything that we want to talk about but it is of course not uh, non-culture bound and historical concept at all. Um, I can't say a great deal about it because I don't know the history of the concept but I would guess that there are plenty of cultures in which works were written that we now think of as being literary works that were not conceptualized as literary works during the time that they were written and that must be one of the I mean, like many concepts in aesthetics, fiction being another one, representation being perhaps another. Yes. Um, we have to remember that these concepts have got a history, and what's involved in singling out a particular kind of utterance or a particular kind of writing as literature.
0: Thank you. Yes, yes, that that, that may make sense. Do you, do you want to say a little bit about your your interest in the in the, this area of of philosophy and literature, and, and well, you know why we should read literature as philosophers? Or
3: yes, I think that. L- It's very difficult to read certain sorts of literary work without being prompted to philosophical questions about them. Um, So, uh, so, um, and the questions that particularly interest me, I suppose, are questions in ethics and in uh, the philosophy of morality, what moral thought consists of. Um, One of the big ones is, I think, whether... By looking at the ways in which literature might bear on our moral understanding, it challenges conventional conceptions of what moral thinking is.
0: Yes, yeah, that makes sense. Stacey, what about you? What about your interest in philosophy and literature and how they come together or how they
2: perhaps don't come together? Um, well, I think I share Greg's skepticism that we should think that we get something out of literature Philosophically speaking, that we can't get anywhere else. Um, but it may well be the case that, particularly, narrative literature can contribute to philosophical enterprises um, by pushing us to think imaginatively, particularly about possibilities. So, just to give an example, um, John Locke, when he discusses personal identity, the nature of a person and what makes you the same person, develops a number of thought experiments about how, imagine the consciousness of a prince entered the body of a cobbler. Would it be the prince or the cobbler? And it doesn't take much effort to think of the many science fiction stories that develop those kinds of scenarios in far more detail than Locke does and perhaps help us think through the coherence of those possibilities in ways that philosophers often don't um, because writers of, of literature, fiction writers, are often just better at imaginatively developing these scenarios. Yes. Yes. So in that sense, I think they can contribute to philosophical projects, but I wouldn't necessarily think that literature will just be a kind of philosophy that other kinds of philosophy can't do. That yes,
0: right? that, that makes sense. So, so literary works stimulate us, they inspire us to, to, to think about philosophical questions, but they can't do the work of philosophy.
2: Well, I don't want to say that they couldn't. Um, for example, right, Plato's dialogues, I think, do Uh, the work of philosophy and are arguably also literature. Um, So there are works that seem to me to belong potentially in both categories. Um, And so it's not the case that because something is literature, it's ruled out of doing any philosophical work. That isn't the claim. But when we just think of sort of standard novels or whatever, the claim that... In particular, that there's a kind of ethical work that can only be done by lengthy realistic novels, and cannot be done through other means of philosophizing. Um, I think I'm skeptical about that claim. Yes, yes.
0: Okay, that that makes good sense. Well, um, yes, good.
1: I think the dialogue form is interesting here because um, Plato's dialogues are dialogues. um, They have a Dramatic structure; they're also fiction. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, they may very well be based on fact, um, yes. and the people who appear in character, in uh, as the speakers, may be real people. But that's true in lots and lots of fiction, that you get real people and you get the fiction based on the fact. And what probably isn't the case is that somebody was taking down verbatim reports of what people were actually saying at the time. So uh, definitely the dialogue form is a form of fictional literature that is very, very well suited to philosophical to the presentation of philosophical arguments but I think that is a very special case and when people talk about the philosophical importance of literature they're not usually thinking about that they're thinking about the great novels the great dramas the great poetry and I think the argument there is is just a harder one to have
0: Yes. I mean, but we often think of, um, you know, certain <coughs> uh, disciplines coming with a particular form that lends itself well to, to to express whatever the discipline is about. And so perhaps in the case of philosophy, I'd be a little bit prejudiced if, if we think of the former kind of philosophy that we now find find in the in uh, in the in the journals. Or, uh, you know, would it perhaps be a good idea to occasionally adopt a more literary form, just like the dialogue form that you talked about in Plato? It,
2: I think it can be. Um I myself wrote a dialogue with um, a colleague, and part of the point of the dialogue was to discuss the significance of argument for understanding mental content. And I won't get into the details, but given the point of the paper, it was important important, in a sense, to demonstrate what we were talking about. And so the dialogue form was actually quite a natural form. And there are other examples. I mean, Sartre's plays are in some ways better yes. <laughs> expressions of some of his philosophical ideas than some of his prose or expository writings. Um, so I don't think, I mean, I, I agree with Greg that the usual way of thinking about this is to say the great novel is, is somehow doing philosophy but i agree and that's why i brought up the idea of dialogue yes. that there's nothing to rule out the idea that some literary forms can be particularly philosophical but notice the dialogue is in a sense suited to philosophy because we think of philosophy as engaging in arguments and handling objections yes yes and indeed. so yes it's a natural fit in a way it that is. your yes. standard novel narrative isn't Yes. Yes.
3: I think that's that's a very good point because when philosophers such as Nussbaum or Cora Diamond have argued that literature has some special status in philosophy, they've typically been trying to argue that uh, reasoned argument is not privileged; it's not the only form in which philosophy can get done yes. and so it's the very fact that you know, in a sense that dialogues are not an interesting test case because, because they're precisely argumentative and I think we need to distinguish by the way three different claims one is uh, as it were the, the, the weakest possible claim which is can literature inspire us to moral reflection I think yes. few people would deny that the second is can it be philosophy and the third is are there bits of philosophy that only it can do which is the most ambitious yes. uh, claim
0: Yes, and 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 all of these will we shall engage with uh, more. Uh, we'll also explore uh, the connection between truth and literature. Um, but first, we're going to play a song, and it's uh, trop de Souffrance" by Tia. Enjoy. ¡Gracias! Philosophy Now Radio. I'm Anya Steinbauer, and I'm joined by Dr. Stacy Friend, Dr. Edward Harcourt, and Professor Gregory Curry. We're discussing philosophy and literature. Well, philosophers, I'm sure you all know this, are notoriously interested in truth. Is there truth in literature? Well, is there even literary truth? Well, these questions have been around for quite a long time. Uh, Plato very famously thought that literary works were dangerous because they consist simply of quote, quote stories that anyone happens to make up and uh, well they uh, distort truths they uh, even the very obvious ones so for instance it's very irresponsible Plato to thought of, of homer to describe heroes um, as anything but what they are by definition namely brave and martial so it doesn't make sense really to have Achilles, the greatest of the Greek heroes, um, hiding among the women because he doesn't want to go to war in, in, uh, in Troy. So, so that's, that's simply not appropriate. Well, can we expect uh, truth from, from fiction? Is, 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 is that uh, the sort of thing we should be looking for? Who would like to answer this first? Stacey, I know you, t- you talk, talk a lot about these sorts of things.
2: Well, I think that we can expect various kinds of truths from various works of fiction, but I don't think that there's a blanket answer to the question about the kind of truth we get from all fiction or all literature or... or And I'm skeptical of the claim that there's anything like a special literary truth. But I think certain works of fiction are certainly um, aiming to provide certain kinds of truths, including ordinary truths. So take an example like War and Peace, which... Yeah. Is a bit complicated in terms of the fiction non fiction distinction, but nonetheless, even in its fictional parts, Tolstoy is aiming to give us a sense of what it was like for the soldiers who are in certain battles. Yes. And how do we know that we're getting a good picture of that? Well, you might not know just from reading it. I don't think plausibility or verisimilitude tells you if it's true. But you can know that because Tolstoy interviewed soldiers and talked to people who were coming back from the battles and conveyed what they were doing artistically in a way that brought it to life for people. And so there are clearly are works of fiction that can give us truths of that kind. Um, and that's not a claim that you can't get those truths elsewhere. Um, but there's no doubt that works of fiction can give us those kinds of truths. Right, okay.
1: Yes, Greg. It's worth bearing in mind, I think, that in a very ordinary sense and perhaps a very uninteresting sense, fiction almost always contains a lot of truth. So fictions are typically written against a background of assumed truth or at least what the author and the audience would take to be true. So there's an awful lot going on in a fictional story uh, that everybody who reads the story assumes, even though none of it's explicitly said by the author, and they assume it because it's true. So we all assume that Sherlock Holmes... Had one head and not two heads. (laughs) I don't think it ever says anywhere in the story that he has one head, but people have one head yes. and that's what we all assume about Sherlock Holmes.
0: So we complete the picture. Yeah. Yes. Yes. yes, I yeah. think that's,
3: that's important. And, and how much and what is assumed um, is going to be dependent on the reader's understanding of genre. So, you know, in Sherlock Holmes novels you probably assume the laws of physics hold. In science fiction you don't necessarily assume that. Um, yes. So, uh, quite sophisticated distinctions are uh are brought to bear in terms of what genre you're in and then of course authors can play with that
2: yes yes but i don't think my object to to greg's um suggestion that it might not be very interesting that we do that because i think actually it is very interesting and it tells us something about how we engage with fiction and what we're getting out of fiction so the fact That when we approach a work of fiction, we take for granted that the world of the fiction is just like the real world, tells us something about how we think of fictions. We don't think of fictions as utterly disconnected from our lives and the world we live in. And so it's very natural for us to seek connections to fiction, truths in fiction, and so on. And I think that's implied by this attitude that we take to fiction. Yes, but this is why Plato would have thought that fiction is, is so dangerous, right? Because, well, it's it is it's not crazy
0: stuff, but yes, it does seem connected to our world and yet somehow it distorts us, it, it distorts the world, it, it distorts uh, what we might think of as, as a truth and perhaps manip- manipulates us as well and it makes things very plausible that actually aren't the case.
1: Some philosophers have talked about this in terms of what they call import and export. So we... ...typically import an enormous amount of stuff from the real world into the fictional world. And everybody just assumes that that's going on and we don't need very many clues to find out what it is. But there's also a phenomenon of export, which is, I think, interesting and sometimes controversial and sometimes even worrying... Which is that things that go on in the fictional world, we are being invited, maybe not explicitly, but there is an expectation there that we will assume that the things represented in the fictional world actually hold in the real world as well. And you can find many such examples in the German propaganda films of the Nazi period, for instance, yep. which are fictional films, which represent Jewish people in certain ways. But these are not merely fictions. It's very clear that there is a purpose behind this, and that is to export the implicit picture of a Jewish person and a Jewish community to the real world from the fictional world.
2: Yeah. And it looks like, I mean, there's, a, there's quite a bit of a psychological literature as well. I mean, philosophers have called it import and export, and psychologists are concerned with what they call incorporation or integration of what we grasp from a fiction into what we believe about the real world. And the evidence suggests that regardless of whether we perceive it as the intention of, of the author, as in explicit propaganda cases like that, um, it's definitely the case that our beliefs about the real world are influenced by what we read in works of both fiction and nonfiction and perhaps most worrisome. Um, there are cases in which we're more likely to believe what we're taking from fiction than from a work of nonfiction. The theory behind that is that we lower our scrutiny when we think something is fiction, and right. so certain kinds of information gets slipped in under the radar, yes. and if that is misleading or just false, then we might be more likely to form false beliefs or or misleading attitudes on the basis of fiction. So it's certainly a concern. Yes.
3: Yes, I think this draws attention to the question whether. I mean, it's undoubtedly true that that literature conveys some truths, but many of these truths are trivial and uninteresting truths such as that you know Moscow is east of Paris or something like that (laughs) um but there is then the question of whether um as it were it can be part of the intent of fiction to make assertions um and if that's the case that raises the further question whether it's appropriate to evaluate fiction on the basis of the truth or falsity of what it says um and I think the answer to that is actually yes. I think that fiction can be importantly vitiated by its conveying untruths. And I don't just mean of a propagandistic kind. Yeah. Um, there can be things that are not apparently false that are asserted or maintained in a work of fiction. And you can it can take you a while to, as it were, rumble the author and think, hang on a minute, that's not true at all. And once you've yes. realized that a falsehood is being conveyed here, that can that can wreck the story.
0: Yes. And uh, I think per- perhaps very often our expectations are, are just, just inappropriate, uh, such, such as, um, you know, in, in the case of, of uh, historical uh, works of, of literature, where we expect to learn something about, about history. I think, Stacey, that's something you've been interested in.
2: Yes. Um, with historical fictions, it's actually quite complicated. Um, I think that There's evidence that we're actually not that bad at distinguishing between background facts and a story. So when there's a fictional story set in a realistic background, we aren't too bad at distinguishing between the stuff that it's okay to buy into and maybe learn about London in the 19th century or something, and the stuff that's purely fictional. There was no Oliver Twist, etc. But with historical fictions, the mix is much tighter There isn't as clear a distinction between the background and the foreground. The fictional facts are mixed in with the actual facts in a way that makes them much harder to pull apart. And so it might be, somewhat paradoxically, that it's harder to learn from historical fiction than from other kinds of fiction because we're just as likely to pick up on what's not true as what actually is true.
1: I think it's possible, in fact, I know it happens, to... Um, pick up false beliefs because you've mixed up background and foreground, reading Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens gave me the belief, the firm belief, that there was a profession of people who rode about on the Thames looking for dead bodies, (laughs) uh, which they would then pick out of the water and present to the police or the hospital or somewhere and it turns out that there never was such a profession and nobody ever did it dickens (laughs) made it up but i took that to be background
2: that's a great example i mean that's an example of why we might be reasonable at doing this but we are by no means perfect at doing it yes
3: yes that is an example of where although you might be you're misled by the fiction as it were the literary merit of the book doesn't turn on the truth of that claim. It's not something that that, that Dickens is asserting as a mm-hmm. as a kind of main claim of, of of the book, and therefore on which its value should be assessed.
2: But to take another Dickens example, I mean, I don't I don't know if other people have a different view, but there is um, a book, the name escapes me immediately, in which one of the characters dies by spontaneous combustion. Bleak House. Bleak House. Thank you. And. Crook. Yes, Crook dies by spontaneous (laughs) combustion. And it strikes me that it is actually a flaw in the novel. And perhaps that's because I know that Dickens believed that spontaneous combustion did occur. Yes. And therefore had a character die in that way, thinking it was just a way one could die. Um, Now, he wasn't asserting that spontaneous, it's not clear to me that he was actually asserting that spontaneous combustion occurs, but he was presupposing that it does occur. And it seems to me a flaw in an otherwise fairly realistic, from the point of view of the physical sciences novel, um, that it made a pretty bad mistake.
1: I mean, one reason you might think that it is a significant error and does some damage to literary qualities of the work is that it distorts the genre of the work because um, from the perspective of somebody who doesn't buy into the spontaneous combustion hypothesis, it it presents a kind of Distractingly supernatural element in yes. what's otherwise a naturalistic story. Yes. So there, I think there is a good, are good grounds for thinking that this is this is a, a literary demerit in the work. Yes.
2: that's a nice distinction between that case and the other case because that doesn't. Uh, your case doesn't undermine right the genre it's still realistic it's just the fact that
1: people don't row about on the thames looking for bodies (laughs) doesn't change the genre (laughs) of the work yes
3: that's right although of course it's going to be relative to what the reader knows because there might be some people who lived on the thames or who are experts on that kind of thing for whom for all i know that absolutely killed the novel just as you know there's the thing about the famous example of piggy's glasses in lord of the flies they were Convex rather than concave or do I mean right. I think it might be, be the other way, way around well yes. you see how yeah. much I know about yeah. yes. you know, how to, yeah. set, to start a fire with the sun's rays but of course it <laughs> didn't ruin it for me because I don't know which round it, way around it goes but there right. would be other people for whom that might have the same yes. effect as the spontaneous combustion case
0: yes that, that that's yep, That that's very interesting. So so there is sometimes a problem, uh, you know, concerning uh, fact and and, and fiction. Um, but uh, I would like us to to talk a little bit more about uh, about values in in literature and perhaps in particular we'll we'll talk about uh, moral values and uh, in in a more general sense we might come to the question of what we can uh, learn from, uh, from literature but first of all we've got some more music uh, this time it's a song about a literary figure from a German children's book um, it's a real classic uh, Jim Knopf by Die Prinzen
4: Ungeheuer, Der ist nachts heimlich weggerannt Einfach raus aus Nummerland mit Emma Gym-Dop. übers Meer Wem hilft Lukas Gym-Dop. dabei sehr? Auf die Bösen, hilft den Schwachen Bei wem am Drachen nicht zu lachen? Mach Dampf, Gym-Dop. gib Gas Mach Dampf, Gym-Dop. viel Spaß The reisen Wer kennt viele Abenteuer Drachen, Prinzen, Ungeheuer Ist nachts heimlich weggerannt Einfach raus aus Dummerland Komm mit Emma übers Meer Wem hilft Lukas dabei sehr Auf die Bösen hilft den Schwachen
0: Okay, we're back. This is Philosophy Now Radio. I'm Anja Steinbau and I'm discussing philosophy and literature with my guests, Dr. Edward Harcourt, uh, doc- Professor Gregory Curry and Dr. Stacey Friend. Um, now, we've, we've been uh, talking about uh, truth and literature, truth and literature. Um, and uh, just, just uh, to continue on this theme a little bit, um, We'd like to come back to the question of of assertions and how uh, truth may be communicated. And Edward, you you had another um, idea on this.
3: Well, yes. So I'm not sure whether this is... uh, So the the question of whether we should think about uh, truth in literature always as a matter of uh, literary works making explicit assertions, such as the assertion about... um, Uh, that we had before about bodies being able to spontaneously combust. I mean, I think that one way in which um, the things that an author holds to be true um, can come out in literary works without explicit assertion is in the author's choice of evaluative vocabulary. Uh, which words do you choose to yes. describe the goods and bads of what's going on? Yeah. And another related case uh, is to do with uh, the way in which one's choice of vocabulary can deliberately um, be designed to prevent, vent certain sorts of thought from occurring in the reader. So Cora Diamond has a nice example of the way in which Um, events which if described in an ordinary language way would provoke disgust or moral questioning Uh, when described in medical terminology will not provoke that kind of thing because if the names of body parts are in latin if there's a sober neutral unemotional tone uh, certain kinds of thoughts simply will not occur to one or at least will not occur to the reader without very deliberate prodding by somebody else yes
1: Um, I think there are interesting questions to ask about the idea of assertion in literature. And they do relate to this question that we raised earlier about truth and the reliability of purported truths in literature. So it's pretty rare, I guess, for uh, an author these days and even classically to make explicit assertions about things probably you couldn't even say that Dickens actually explicitly asserted that um, spontaneous combustion you can just take it Mm -hmm. as part of the Mm -hmm. fiction so um, there may be other mechanisms that are exploited by authors of fiction to get ideas across that fall short of assertion and so you might think about what those are one of them i think that's interesting is something we might call merely manifesting your beliefs so instead of telling people things you can just behave in a way which kind of indicates that you have a belief so i could tell you that it's raining outside that would be an assertion or i can uh pick up my umbrella as I go out the door and that will manifest to you the belief that I have that it's raining or it's going to rain pretty soon and I think a lot of what authors do falls into that manifestation category and then there are interesting questions to ask about how do we respond to manifestation, do we respond much less critically to it than we do to assertions so when people actually lay it out for us and stake their reputations on a proposition by asserting it, um, we can, in certain circumstances, be pretty careful and critical about the way we hear it. When people manifest their beliefs fairly casually, it's much easier for beliefs simply to get transmitted uncritically from one person to another. So I think that's one interesting mechanism that's not much explored here. Yeah.
2: I think that the case of the spontaneous combustion, I mean, what I was saying before is that it strikes me as a kind of presupposition, and this might be a way, I'm not sure, a way in which these beliefs that an author has do get manifested. So given that Dickens believed um, that there was spontaneous combustion, he didn't assert it in the work, but he had a character die from it, as he had other characters die from various other, what he thought to be, natural causes. And I'm not sure if that's the kind of thing you're thinking about. That's manifesting the belief by having Mm. characters who act in the relevant ways, who die in the relevant ways, and so on. Um, And it seems to me that that's a much more standard way, uh, I agree, in which these beliefs get put forward (coughs) and then get adopted. But another way that they do, I think we should mention, is state So they're not direct assertions necessarily by an author, but certainly statements by characters, right? So it's a bit tricky to identify those statements as assertions. One has to do at least a bit of interpretive work to recognize that certain characters... Um, like Fairbrother and Middlemarch are the characters who represent kind yes. of wise point of view from the author's point of view. But it's, it's a bit trickier. But those can also give us um, certain kinds of information. But I do think we're a bit more critical of those kinds
0: of yes. claims. Okay, that, I think that's that's very interesting. What about if you know if if, if these claims, uh, and I would I would like us to after all move just very very briefly because we only have a few minutes in, into this this area of, of of ethics. What what if if there's sort of moral claims? I mean, you know, can you know to what degree? And some of you have commented on this a little bit. You know, can can uh, literature make a contribution there? So. And so, so Shelley tells us that the great instrument of the moral good is, is the imagination, and you know, philosophers such as Wolheim and Nussbaum maintain that you you can't get a good enough moral education just by philosophizing. You need, somehow you also need to, to read fiction. Do, do, do you agree in any way with that?
3: Well, I think that, that a name that came up earlier in this connection was Martha Nussbaum, who's yes. one of the philosophers who's made the most... Uh, the strongest claims for the unique philosophical value of literature. And I think in order to understand properly what she's talking about, we need to distinguish between uh, moral thinking and moral philosophy. So uh, even if that distinction isn't a sharp one, there are certain kinds of claim that are characteristic of moral philosophy, such as claims about the nature of moral language, Um, or the nature of moral reflection, that it's essentially particular. And I think Nussbaum's view is distinctive in that, unless I've misunderstood her, she seems to be saying that that imaginative literature is uniquely well-placed to tell us those things, which she holds to be true, about the nature of (laughs) moral language. Now, I think that really can't be right. Uh, it exempl- if, if, if her view about the nature of moral language and the nature of moral reflection is true, yes. then literature may well exemplify right. those things. But it doesn't tell us that it's got them. So, That's so it has for a the place. critic or for the philosopher to tease out. But I would, I'm with her yes. in thinking that literature can be uh, an instance of moral yes. thought.
0: Okay, and what about about Greg, what do you
1: think? One of the things that Nussbaum's work emphasizes, I think, is that when we talk about knowledge, there's an ambiguity that philosophers are very used to. Uh, Are we talking about knowing some truth, or are we talking about a kind of knowledge that is much more like a practical kind of knowledge, what philosophers call knowing how... And you can know how to do something without having much or any ability to say how it is that you're doing it. And you may not be able to produce any theory of it. And if there's a case to be made for moral knowledge from fiction, I suspect it's going to be made in terms of knowing how to do things rather than in terms of knowing moral propositions because very often people point out that if you try to take an explicit moral message from a great work of literature, you end up with something that's uninteresting or banal. But the idea that you could actually become a more morally sensitive, more morally able person by reading literature is an interesting idea.
2: Did you agree with that, Stacy? Well, I, I'm skeptical that literature, we talked about this before, mm-hmm. or fiction in particular is uniquely placed to do that. But I certainly can see an argument for the claim that thinking about human motivation, thinking about why people do what they do, Um, across a range of examples that may well go beyond what you're ordinarily exposed to in your own life and which enables you, um, if the author is a decent guide to human psychology, which I think is an important question, to understand people's motivations in a way that seems more direct because you have access often to... The thoughts of yes. characters. Yes. And this can help you think to yourself, I mean, in a pra- totally practical way, when you think about why did someone do something, how should you evaluate yes. people's actions and activities, if you have a wider range of ideas about how people are motivated and what their concerns are, yes. then it certainly can enhance your moral thinking. So, so it, in combination with moral philosophy, it's perhaps. Yes, I mean, I don't think that that is delivering deep moral truths. I don't mm-hmm. think that it's yep. telling us whether, say... You know, consequentialism is the correct moral theory, yes. or something yes. of that no, kind. Sure. Yeah. Yes,
0: no. That, that that I think that is that must be right. Um, well, we have to we have to stop here. Unfortunately, uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, I'd like to thank you all very much for for being on the show today. Is there is there anything that you would like to bring to the attention of our listeners? You know, any publications or uh, events that uh, that you would like to to talk about? no? Greg, any, you have a book that you'd like to.
1: I have a book on narrative. It's called Narratives and Narrators, and it's Oxford University Press 2010.
0: Yeah, well, there. So, if you if you'd like to read a little bit more, uh, then, then uh, you know now what where to look. Um, I've I've got something to recommend. Well, for philosophy events in London, um, that's that's uh, talks, Walks, film club, feminism forum. Uh, I recommend Philosophy for All, which I co organise, and uh, you can look us up on www.pfalondon.org Now, uh, remember, you can podcast. All the shows are available on the Philosophy Now website. Thank you all for listening to Philosophy Now Radio and we're hoping to be back uh, in August, fingers crossed. Until then, you know, keep thinking, keep arguing and don't forget to read Philosophy Now magazine. We'll say goodbye with a last piece of music, Philosopher Kings by Fresh Hats and Tight Beats. Goodbye.